modern Israel in Bible prophecy. What an interesting subject. And if you were to, to, to bring that up to any Christian of any faith, of any denomination, of any movement, they'd all give you a different answer. What does Israel have to do with Bible prophecy today? Is Israel a part of what God is doing? Will Israel be a part of what God will do in the future? The question is a beauty. And I want to take you to the Bible to start off with, right back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 25, 26. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 4 because right back at the beginning of time God made Abraham who was the father of the Israelites and and quite a few other nations too but in in, in the Bible God makes a promise to Abraham to Israel and it's one I think that today we need to read, we need to understand and we need to take note of. He says this, Genesis chapter 26 verse 4 see if you can see Jesus in this see if you can see the the prediction of Jesus thousands of years in the future, because it's here. Genesis 26 verse 4, talking to Abraham, talking to this nation that will come forth from him, Israel. God says, I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I'll give them all these lands, and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Did you see Jesus there? Did you see it? And... Through your descendants. What descendant? Jesus. All the nations will be blessed. So here God is telling Abraham, as God is birthing this nation, and, and, and make no mistake, God was instrumental, was central, was right there at the beginning of the existence of Israel. He brought her forth. He grew her. He protected her. It was God who went and saved her from slavery in Egypt. It was God, Jesus himself, who led them through the desert to the promised land. It was God. Yes, it was. Now, I know that's not always this popular, a popular thing to say today, but back then it was God who gave Israel the land that Israel even currently now exists on. Now, I'm not saying God gave it to them today. But I'm saying back there, God gave it to them. It was their land. And they prospered. They were protected. Israel, ancient Israel of the Bible, were protected by God. Now, I grew up with Uncle Arthur's Bible stories. How many of you grew up with them? And quite a few. They're powerful, huh? And if you haven't got them, go and buy them because if you want your kids to know Jesus, those Bible stories are as powerful as any you can get. And Israel to me was this legendary nation of old where God's mightiest. And I remember reading my dad and mum, reading me the stories in the Bible and it touched me and it moved me. And so I'm from a young age because of the way I've been brought up in Christianity and the stories I've heard in Israel of the Israelites and of Israel, I'm quite partial to Israel. Even today, I'm quite partial to modern Israel because of my past as I grew up learning about their great heroes of old. God blessed Israel. But in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem. It was, a, it was the end of many, many years of rebellion of Judah and Israel against God. And Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem. He breaks down the walls. And so began in history what is called the diaspora, which is a Greek word for the dispersion. We now see the Israelites, the Jews, the people of Judah, dispersing from this time onwards all around the world. So no longer are the Jews tied just to the ancient land of 
Israel. They're all over the world. And by the 20th century, it seems that there was a Jewish conclave. There were Jewish people in every nation on the planet. They had dispersed, that's why they call it the diaspora, from one end of the planet to the other. And they were everywhere. They were in Australia. This is the 20th century. They're in America. They're in Britain. They're in Europe. They're in Asia. They were all over the planet. Almost where there was life, there was a Jew. And truly Jesus promised to Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars in the sky had come true. Millions and millions and millions and millions of Jews all over the world. But then something happened. The Nazis came into power in Germany in 1933. And Jewish persecution began. And it was a it was a serious, concerted persecution. Hitler, wicked man, and the Nazis, they slowly but surely ramped this persecution up until in 1938, if you were a Jew, not only were you wearing a Star of David, living in Germany, but you were put in concentration camp. And World War II broke out. And most of us know the history where the Nazis murdered in cold blood six million Jewish girls and boys, men and women. And I think when, and I can remember when I first was confronted by this truth of what had happened, the horror I felt that humans could do to other humans such despicable things. And I think some of us have seen some of the movies that have come out in recent times that have described what happened during World War II with the Jews and how dreadful and how awful and how terrible it was. And so at the end of World War II, you know, the American soldiers, they say, would go into these death camps where six million people were gassed, were murdered, were put to death. And they say the American soldiers would go in not really, not really realising what they're going into. And they, they, they saw what had happened with their own eyes. And they say that they would take the guards and the commandants of these camps without even a judicial hearing. They'd take them out and put them against the walls and they'd shoot them dead. So horrified were they with what they came across. And if you've been to Europe... And if you go to Europe, you should take the time to go to one of these camps and be sobered. And I think the message that never again should ring out in the hearts and heads of all of us. And so the world did have, because they watched while this happened. It's true that we were fighting the Nazis, but there's much more that we could have done. Much more we could have done. And I won't go into that today. But at the end of World War II, the world was burdened by the collective guilt of what had happened in Germany. And so the United Nations, is a long story I don't have time to share today, with the support of the United States and Russia and even Great Britain reluctantly, supported the formation of a Jewish state. And on the 14th of May, 1948, Israel, for the first time in some thousands of years, on the 14th of May, 1948, Israel declared herself a nation. And if you know a little bit of the history, it's really interesting. They were surrounded by hostile Arab states. And these Arab states, 
attacked immediately. It was instant. Six or seven allied Ain't, uh, uh, allied Arab states, the uh, Palestinians, the Jordanians, the Iraqis, the Iranians, together as an allied force, they attacked Israel. Now, I was interested when I was putting this sermon together. I went back and had a look at a bit, bit of the history around this time. I always used to think that it was the Jews fighting just a few of them against an overwhelming Arab force. It seems that's not completely true. In fact, the forces were fairly even in numbers. But the Jews fought like men with their backs to the wall and nowhere to go. In fact, if you read a little bit of the history, the Jews thought that they were fighting for their very survival and believed that another holocaust, just a few years after they'd got out of one, was on their doorstep, and so they fought like fierce lions. In fact, there's some that would say that the Jewish, to this day, armies and soldiers are the best in the world because they have nowhere to go. It was a war of survival. And they won it. Not only did they win the war, they actually extended their territory. And so Israel became, recognised by the United Nations, a sovereign, political, secular state, just like Australia is. And since then Israel has fought, so since 1948, the Israelis have fought at least six or more wars, depending on how you want to define these wars. And they have been savage and they have been fierce wars with the Arabs. And they have literally won every single one of them. And Israel today is alive and she is strong. Now I look back on that as a pastor, as a Christian, I say, well, was God involved in the formation and the protection and the advancement of Israel as a state? I don't know. But God still does interfere in the secular affairs of men, amen? Can I ask you a question? Was God involved in helping the Allies beat the Nazis in World War II? Well, most definitely. And we were secular nations, not necessarily acknowledging God, but he was in it. Did he help the Israelis to form a state after the, the enormous suffering of World War II? I don't know. Possibly. It's possible. He looked down on these people and he saw their persecution and he saw their pain. And he helped them set up a state. I don't know, and I wouldn't preach and say they, that he did. I don't know. It might be one of those questions I'll ask him in heaven. But certainly the evangelical church, which Adventism is actually not a part of, but the evangelical church of the United States of America recognises Israel, modern Israel, in Bible prophecy today. And they are very much a part of the resurgence in Christianity of the idea that Israel not only has a place in history, uh, in prophecy, but has a central place. Israel will fight a massive war against the enemies. This is what they say. It's not what I'm saying. This is the evangelicals. Against the enemies of God. And Christ will return triumphant to lead the Jews to the victory that he always promised in the Bible. And that's being preached and taught in evangelical churches in one form or another all over the United States of America. And make no mistake, it has a lot to do with the politics right now of the United States. What the evangelical church is preaching and teaching is votes. And so America's foreign policy toward secular Israel is influenced by the evangelical church and their theological understandings of Israel in prophecy. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so then I think we've got to ask the question, what does, this, what does the Bible say 
about Israel, modern Israel and prophecy. So let's look at it, just for a few moments, let's look at it. And I'm painting in broad brush strokes. I wish I had more time, but I don't. Leviticus 26 verse 12. God makes a promise to Israel. Again, right back at the beginning. And this is what he says. I will walk among you. He's talking to Israel. And I'll be your God. And you shall be my people. And so when I was reading and listening to my mum and dad and Uncle Arthur's Bible stories, all ten volumes of them, and I'm reading the story and I'm hearing the stories of Moses, oh, they're stirring, or David, or the four worthies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And who was the other one? Jesus Christ in the fire furnace. Or of Daniel, or of Isaiah. There is no doubt in the Bible that Israel were God's people. Amen? You can't escape that. God put Israel at the crossroads of the then-known world for one reason only, and that was to take his message of love to the pagan nations of the world. That was their work. That was their job. That's why he rose them. They were to be his people, an example of what it is to live with God. The problem was that they got into the gods of the local nations around about them. Moloch, the fire god, they would sacrifice their children to him outside the walls of Jerusalem, sometimes even in the temple itself. Ashtoreth, the god of immorality, Bel and Dagon, the Babylonian gods. And sexual immorality was at the heart of every single rebellion of Israel to the pagan gods. At its base was sexual immorality. I think there's a lesson for that in that for us today, eh? Sexual immorality is what Satan used to drag them across to these pagan gods. And so ancient Israel never quite did with the power that God envisioned what he had called them to do. And then Jesus came. And he was crucified by the Romans and the Jews and by us. There were three entities that crucified Jesus. The Romans and the Jews did it physically. We did it physically and spiritually. Jesus went to the cross not because the Romans and the Jews decided that's what was going to happen to him. Jesus went to the cross because he loves us. And he took upon himself our sins and he paid the price on the cross. The Romans and the Jews were involved and the temple curtain, you remember, was torn from top to bottom as Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with our sins upon him in the darkness, believing he would never rise again, Jesus' head fell onto his chest and he died and the temple curtain, read in the Bible, was ripped from the top, from the top to the bottom, bottom, symbolising, signifying that worship in that temple, the sacrificial system, was ended. And then in AD 34, Stephen, the apostle, one of the first of the apostles to die a martyr's death, was stoned by the Jews. And many believe that was a watershed event. In fact, some are preaching and teaching, and I used to do it. 
that that was the end of Israel as God's special people. They Their special status had ended. And, and I've heard, oh, thank you. I've heard preachers, and I've done it myself, get up and say that prophetically. That when Stephen was stoned, have you heard this? It was a watershed moment, and that was the end of Israel as God's special people. But I have found in recent times that that is not what the Bible preaches or teaches. It is not what it teaches. It's not what Paul preached, and it's not what he said. And I'm going to stand here, and you call me a heretic, but listen to me through today. That was not the end of Israel as God's special people. God forbid, God did not turn his back on Israel. God did not walk away from Israel. He did not cast the Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrews out. Far from it. Paul talks about a mystery. And I've only come across this in recent times in my own personal Bible study. And as I'm reading the books of Ephesians and Galatians and Romans, these books of Paul, he keeps talking about this mystery. Do you want to know what it is? Oh, you've got to say yes. Do you want to know what it is? (laughs) Let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. I'm going to read them straight through these verses. You need to watch and see and listen very carefully because Paul unwraps this mystery here and it's to do with Israel and well let's have a look when I think of all this I Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the benefit of you Gentiles so Paul is in prison in Rome writing this he says assuming by the way that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles so Paul's saying I'm not preaching to the Jews I'm not preaching to the Hebrews I'm not preaching to my people I'm preaching to you those of you who are Gentiles who in here is not a Jew who is not a Jew put your hand up high well, Paul's talking to you. He's talking to our answer. Have we got any Jews here today? Yeah, we have. Okay. Yeah, you are, aren't you? That's right. So this is what he says. Assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you, Gentiles, as I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. Now watch this. This is Paul talking about Israel and us. He says, As you read verse 4, what I've written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. There's a mystery, there's a plan. Look at it. God did not reveal it to previous generations. See, it's a mystery. No one knew about it before this. But by his spirit, but, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. So here's a mystery. uh, Here it is. It's revealed. Both Gentiles and Jews. Who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Now look at this, look at this. Both are a part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. Then go to Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. Same author, same guy, Paul, and he says this, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's Descendants, as according to the promise, as to every promise that was given to ancient Israel, now become yours. Do you get this? This is so powerful. Paul is saying to his Hebrew brothers and sisters, God has not forsaken you. And if I have a message for the Jews today, it's that message, God, and I'm going to go further. Jesus Christ, who is God, has not forsaken Israel. 
He has not forsaken the Jews. And neither has he forsaken the Gentiles. Or you. God loves people. And his love is so intense and it's so deep and it's so strong that he sent Jesus to save people, both Jews and Gentiles. Now here's the mystery and here's the miracle. You've got to remember Paul is a Jew. He's brought up being taught in the Sanhedrin by some of the Gamaliel, one of the best Jewish theologians, not one of, the best Jewish theologian of his time. Paul has a PhD, highly educated. He knows what the Jews claim. He understands their special status in God's eyes. But he says things have changed. Now God has taken the Gentiles and the who? And the Jews. Did he forsake the Jews? God has taken the Gentiles and the Jews and he's bonded them into one body which is my church. This is what Jesus did. He came and took his people, the Jews, and he took the Gentiles and he bonded them into one body. So you got Peter, Jesus' disciple and apostle. He goes a message of, he goes with the message of Jesus to the Jews. And you got Paul, another apostle who was actually amazing, amazing conversion on the road to Damascus. And Jesus takes him out into the desert of Arabia for three years. Jesus comes down himself, read the Bible. For three years and he teaches and preaches Paul the gospel. He relearns him from the university of his days to the university of Jesus Christ. I think we need a bit of relearning among some of us today too. And Paul goes to the Gentiles. Peter goes to the Jews. And they advance and they build through the power of the Holy Spirit the one Christian church. Do you get it? Do you get it? Now watch this because I'm going to bring this to conclusion. I'm going to do it quick. In Revelation chapter 12, God calls this new entity, this new church of Jews and Gentiles. He calls symbolically this church a woman, a beautiful woman. Go and read Revelation 12. But we know through history that this beautiful woman, between 3 and 500 AD, and by 530 AD, it was complete. There was a split in the early Christian church. There was a split. And you get the church of Rome on one side of the split and you get the church of the apostles on the other. And most went with Rome. A minority went with the apostles. I wish I had more time to unpack that, but I don't. But there was a split. And there was persecution. Now, the Christian church has always went through persecution. From the days of Jesus onwards, you see this picture here. It's an old picture. It's an ancient picture of the persecution of the, of the Christians by this early church. And they were Jew and Gentile by the Romans by the, by, in the Colosseum. But the amazing thing is that after the split, and it was concluded by 530 AD, it was the, it was the, and you could say in inverted commas, the state Christian church who then persecutes the church of the apostles and some 50 million until about 1800 from the time of the apostles to about 1800, about 50 million people were martyred for their love for Jesus Christ, killed, murdered, and most of them were murdered, and this is amazing stuff by the state church. Incredible. 
It's all there in a prophecy. And then came along the Protestant Reformation. So follow me, because I'm talking about this church that Jesus set up of Jews and Gentiles. So it's gone through incredible persecution. It's hemorrhaging. But the persecution forced these people to go all over the world. And the story of Jesus went like a bushfire. Then you have the Protestant Reformation. It's an amazing thing. A reaction. A God-directed, God-driven reaction to Rome. 500 years next year we celebrate. The Lutherans, Martin Luther, brought to the world righteousness by faith. Marvellous movement. Got a lot to thank God for for Martin Luther, amen? But they never went any further than Martin Luther. And so God raised the Anglicans and they brought to this reformation, to this movement, the concept, the idea that it is God that is the supreme ruler and not the Pope. And then we have the Methodists, John and Charles Wesley. So you have the the Lutherans who never went any further than Luther and still haven't. In fact, they've regraded, they've gone regressed, unfortunately. But they brought righteousness by faith. The Anglicans brought the idea that, hey, God is the supreme ruler of all. The Methodists, well, they brought in the concept, the truth that God's Ten Commandments and the law matters. And so God, step by step, is bringing those in Rome back to this other church that he always had, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles filled by the Holy Spirit, united under God as one movement. And then you have the Baptists. Because the Methodists never went any further than their founder. You have the Baptists, and these are all marvellous movements. Tremendous churches, led by men and women of courage and bravery, some who gave their lives for the truth. And the Baptists brought back, do you know what they brought back to the truth? Baptism by immersion. And then we have this, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. This is talking about the last step in this reformation from Rome back to God's apostolic true church. And the dragon Satan was enraged with the woman, that's his church, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. That's her last day church. These are the children of the Protestant Reformation. The last day church, and then God describes them. This is more than a movement. This is more than a denomination. This is a description of God's people. You, if you are a part of this church that God, that Jesus himself sent up, of Jew and Gentile. This is how God describes them. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. This last day church, these last day people, Am I a part of it? Well, ask yourself, do you keep the Ten Commandments? All ten. Uh, you don't believe the Ten Commandments get you to heaven, do you? No. They're the fruit. This is how you can look and know of God's last day church. They keep all ten commandments. I can rattle them off. No other gods before me. Don't bow down to golden images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. 
Remember the Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath to keep it holy. Obey your mum and dad. Love that one. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. And so it goes. God's last day, people, according to Revelation, last book in the Bible, keep the commandments. And they have the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus, I'll be fast, is the spirit of prophecy. That's what, that's what we're told in Revelation. The testimony, 19, is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit, what's the greatest example of the spirit of prophecy we have? The Bible. God's last day church, his last day people. This church that Jesus started of Jews and Gentiles keeps the commandments of God and believes and teaches and preaches the Bible. So let me finish with this last text because this is what Jesus told his last day church to do. More than that, this is what Jesus told his church to do. This mixture and unity of Jews and Gentiles. This is what Jesus told them to do. This is why new hope exists. This is what, and I want to bring this home and finish now. This is what Jesus calls you to. Not the corporate church, not the pastor, yeah, he's called to, but not the pastor, you. This is why I've given these forms out to you now. Because you are called to, this is what he says, therefore, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you even to the end of the age, the end of the world. How beautiful is it? So this church that Jesus has set up, of Jews and Gentiles, this church is there. For no other reason, set up by Jesus himself, gone through all these years of persecution, all these years of trial, all these years of trouble, all these years of martyrdom, this church that you can belong to is commanded by God, a a church of commandment-keeping, Bible-believing, grace, faith alone, salvation people. This church is charged by Jesus, our leader, by the Master himself, to go forth and tell the world about him. And then Jesus said, I will come. Hallelujah. Jesus will come. And when he returns... He comes for his church, a unity, a mixture of Jew and Gentile. Hallelujah, you can be part of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this message. You who never turned your back on anyone. You love us, you love the Jew, and you love the Gentile. And you have forged us into one great mighty movement under you, a movement that believes in your law, that follows your Ten Commandments and are a Bible-believing, teaching and, yes, Lord, living people. Infuse in our hearts, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the identity in the Bible that you've given us today. Inspire us, Lord. May we be on the ground for yes, we care. May we respond to you today. Oh, Lord, I'm praying this in Jesus' name.
praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to work. May you be in the hearts of the people of the church today to fill in the form so they can join this great mighty movement. And Lord, drive us to our Bibles. Take us gently onto our knees and convert us through your power. Make us part of this great and mighty church today is my prayer in your name. Amen.